Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stripping the Dipping podcast. You're joined by usual co-host, Mr. AMG. It's AMG Dent. And what can I say? We're so thankful to all our listeners joining into the show. Um, if you're new, welcome aboard. Uh, we like to talk about the world of motorsport and to discover every single thing from the nuts and bolts that go on the wheels, you know, to the contract deals and exclusive stuff behind the scenes. And, you know, today is no different because we have a really special guest today. We're very honored because she basically is the royalty of the F1 Paddock Club and has so much vast experience and, you know, a really huge campaign that she's part of which we really want to, you know, address further in this episode. So everybody here, make sure that you give a, a wild kind of um, clap and a uh, support, of, as always, for our guest. It's Kate Beaven. Kate, how, how are you doing today? Dens, wow, what an intro. How, how, can I, how can I live up to that? That's very kind of you, by the way. What a nice introduction that is. Oh, why, thank you, Kate. And honestly, it's, a, it's an honour as well, because, you know, Georgie obviously lines me up with all of the um the kind of information about our guests, and I'll go away and do some research. But, Kate, you've been in such a unique kind of position where you've seen, you know, Formula One as a sport grow and kind of, like, you know, touch the hearts of many as such. And it's really interesting just to be able to sit down with you today and to go through some of those early memories, but also some of the new things that you've been working on, which is quite pivotal. And of course, as well, just um, some some really interesting stories as well, Kate. So without further ado, Kate, would you like to kind of give our audience a bit of a um, insight into who you are and what you've done? Because, you know, if, if you haven't realized by now, guys, this is the legendary Kate Beaven, which was the ex-director of hospitality and experiences for the F1 Paddock Club. So, you know, for all of your suave, like, you know, like celebrities and stuff like that, Kate was the person behind the force making those experiences and also doing a lot of the, the high profile commercial deals as well in terms of F1 branding and, you know, we us even having like an F1 roller coaster in Abu Dhabi, for example, with the trademarks and stuff. So, Kate, I'll give you the floor. Tell us more about yourself and just how it all began. Well, you picked me up a bit there, Denzi. I have to tell you, you know, don't. <laughs> I think you ought to realise I started out, I don't know what, thirty years ago as a um, as a single parent with with no money and no prospects and a and a and a baby to look after. So, um, and failed all my um, initial A-levels. So, you know, if you ever want anyone to understand that um, you can fuck up and it will be okay, then I'm your man. (laughs) (laughs) I have been working in Formula One since the mid-90s. I think 96 is when I started. I originally qualified as a lawyer. Um, I worked for a Formula One team called Arrows. Uh, and that all went bust in the early 2000s. And then I got a phone call from Bernie Eccleston. He asked me to come and join him. And uh, funny thing is, I said no. I, had, wow. <laughs> I said no three times. I, by then, I kind of had enough of Formula One because I'd had a rough time at Arrows. The end of Arrows, when it went bust, was quite tough, actually. Uh, and it was kind of depressing, you know, and I thought, you know what, I'll go and do something else. So when Bernie phoned me, I, I said no. And I think he thought it was a negotiating tactic because, um, you know, he phoned me again and then phoned me again and said, come and we'll just come and have a 
cup of tea with me in London. So I went down to see him in London, had a cup of tea. Um, and he is such a charmer. He is, you know, I mean, I'd do anything for that man. He's such a charmer. He he talked me into it. And, um, and you know, and so I joined. Um, of course, looking back now, I look at myself and I go, you said no three times. Are you mad? Uh, but at the time, you know, it seemed like uh, a sensible thing to do to say, I'll go and do something else. But in retrospect, of course, what a brilliant decision. So I worked for Bernie uh, from 2003 uh, in various, lots of commercial roles. I moved away from being a lawyer and more into just more fun. You know, lawyers sit at the back end of every deal. They let other people go and do the deal and then they have to write it up. And, and you know, there's no fun in that, really. Uh, there's a bit of fun in it. Um, so I moved into commercial roles with Bernie and it was brilliant from 2003 to 2016, uh, 17, when Liberty came in in 2017. Uh, and they came in, uh, completely different ownership and ownership style. And they asked us what we wanted to do. Uh, those of us, you know, who were, who were there in management positions. Because when they bought, when Liberty bought Formula One, they hadn't, they hadn't been able to speak to, they hadn't been allowed to speak to any of the management there. Uh, so they didn't know what we did, you know? And with Bernie, you didn't really have job titles. So they just kind of had this list of people, uh, but they didn't know who they were. They'd never spoke to them before and they didn't know what they did. So they kind of one by one sat us down and talked to us and said, who are you? What do you do? And what do you want to do? Uh, and I asked them if I could be the director of hospitality and experiences uh, because it was a project I started with Bernie not long before they came in. And they very graciously said that I could do that. I thought, that's great. Good. So I stayed there until 2021, 2021. I left in 2021, at the end of 2021, so that I could set up on my own and start doing a few things that I wanted to do. So I now have my own advisory company and I advise any companies or, or investors who want to come into Formula One and don't know how to do it. Because uh, it's quite, kind of quite messy and it can be a bit... If you don't know Formula One, it's a, you can get a bit lost with who does what. So I advise entities who are in Formula One and want to come into Formula One how to do it and how to do it well. Uh, and then I have some projects as well. Uh, one of my projects is More Than Equal, which uh, is, a, a, is a not-for-profit foundation set up by David Coulthard, uh, who I've known for many years, and his friend, Carol Komarek, who none of your listeners will have heard of, but they will soon. Uh, he's won the UK National Lottery rights, so he'll be running the UK National Lottery soon. Uh, he's a philanthropist, and he teamed up with David to set up More Than Equal. And More Than Equal only has one aim, and that is to find a woman and put her on the top of the podium in Formula One. We are going to find and develop a female Formula One world champion. And that is a project I am very much in love with right now. So sorry, Jens. That is that the hour up now? <laughs> <laughs> not not quite, Kate. Not quite. But <laughs> again, like I'm I'm actually very happy that you touched on a lot of the subjects that we were going to go through today, Kate. Because yeah. it, it's just fascinating just to hear that timeline and just to kind of see kind of from the beginning, you know, 
that almost kind of not knowing what where to go, how to start, what life was going to really entail for you, to then kind of, you know, the hardships of working for Arrows, which, you know, for the, the 90s and earlier kind of generation of F1 fans, you remember the Arrows livery um, with the orange on it as well yeah. and the likes of Joss Verstappen and Damon Hill and there's lots of drivers that drove for them, you know, and just, you know, your interactions with Bernie leading up all the way through your career and then the great work that you do now. So, in fact, we'll pull the handbrake here and we'll actually talk about this new campaign that you've just mentioned, More Than Equal. You know, so it sounds like a really exciting venture, of course, as well to have David Kufard, uh, Scotland's finest, behind the, the drive of that as well. It sounds really interesting, you know, because as far as I kind of know about David as well, not only, you know, was he a really prominent driver with McLaren, and obviously Red Bull as well, but today he's still out there kind of working with a lot of younger drivers, helping to develop them and to help them, you know, realize their potential as such. You know, so to hear him embark on a kind of venture like this with yourself and other people as well is really cool. But the question to ask you, Kate, is, you know, like what are the biggest challenges involved in trying to find the first female Formula One champion? You know, and how can our listeners get involved as such as well? Oh, that's a great question, Dunst. Can I ask you a question first? How long sure. have you been? Have you been watching, following Formula One since you were a kid? Uh, honestly, Kate, I've been watching it since I, or listening to it, at least since I was in my mother's room in 95. <laughs> like, it was just the, oh, one wow. of those things, Kate, where like, so on a Sunday. So you've been around it as long as I have with the same kind of, you know... Timeline. Yeah, <laughs> same fiber, of course, you know, and I, I remember kind of like growing up in the 90s and seeing like, you know, the, the Kufards, the Michael Schumachers, the John Alazies, uh, you know, Murray Walker, God bless his soul as well on the yeah. commentary. And even back then, Formula One was such a magical kind of like experience Just in a living room, you know, with my dad watching, you know, all the cars racing each other. But then, you know, to kind of see how Formula One's grown over the years and to see the push now in, you know, other series to kind of have like, you know, people from either less represented backgrounds or people who don't get the opportunity to finally break the mold and to be the first, yeah. I, I think super exciting. It is really exciting, and, and that's what More Than Equal is all about. Now, with David, uh, it's personal, and he has a very personal... He's very, very genuine, authentic guy, David. And um, he, his sister, it's, his sister Lindsay was... He will tell you this. His, his sister Lindsay went karting when, when he was a kid. They both went karting. And um, he, he says now his sister was as good, if not better, than he was. Right when they were at kids karting, and he feels, and and yet he was the one who gets pushed all the way up to Formula One, you know, and he feels that he feels the kind of injustice of that. It's not that it was anyone's fault; it was the way it was at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was then, and this is now. Um, it's a different world, and it is. It's just mad, isn't it? Isn't it mad that? You've got women who can run. You've got women running countries. They've gone to space. They they're in the army. They're in fighter jets, right? But, and then and and a woman hasn't been anywhere near racing in Formula One for nearly fifty years. How isn't that isn't that crazy? It's shameful, Kate. That yeah, it's a right. real in, indictment, you know, on on what the sport has allowed itself to become in a way. And you know, I think 
it's it's been time it's been quite a while and it's been brewing that you know these conversations are being need to be had and you know steps are being needed to be taken to enforce the right measures to you know facilitate you know the next you know not just one kind of female driver or female driver to win the world championship but like you know like the next generation of them to kind of go in and Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, we, we say we are all about finding and developing a woman driver to become a Formula One world champion. That's only one woman, right? But of course, by doing that, you are carving a path for hundreds of, of, of others behind them. And do you know what? What's really interesting about this, Dan, is you can, the old stereotypes that lived for years, women aren't strong enough, you know, women aren't competitive enough. Right, that one makes me laugh a lot. Uh, you know, women um, uh, women are, don't have the um, temperament, or they don't have the psychology, or they don't have the neck strength, or whatever it is. Nobody buys into those anymore. The new fan base. We surveyed them as part of our research. We just did the biggest piece of research that's ever been done on women in motorsport, and we put those stereotypes out there. And the new fan base. I think everyone calls them the the, the, the kind of drive to survive fan base. The new fans of the sport don't buy into that, just like young people don't buy into any of that rubbish, those kind mm-hmm. of stereotypes now, right? So then you've got to ask yourself, well, if it isn't that, if it isn't if it isn't mental or strength or technical skills or whatever, what is it? What is it stopping girls from progressing in motorsport? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to identify what those barriers are. And we have, we've begun to identify them. So it's things like, there's no dedicated training program for elite female drivers right i'll just let that sink in for a minute if you went to any other sport if you went to athletics or tennis or football there's a different training regime you go through take an olympic sport like athletics you wouldn't train a 14 year old boy the same way you train a 14 year old girl would you they they, you'd have a separate training program Mm-hmm. But there isn't one in Formula One, so we're going to build one. We're putting that together now, and we're going to be able to launch mm-hmm. it by next year, right? Because we've all seen with the rise of women's sport, women's bodies are different. They, they, everything about it, the psychology is different, the nutrition, the hormones, the physicality, all of that, you know, different injuries they're getting in football now, women get to men. You need to... You need to build a dedicated training and development program around and for women drivers. So that's what we're going to do. And that's one thing that hasn't been there before. Um, The other thing that's not there is enough girls. There aren't enough girls going karting. And why aren't there enough girls going karting? Because parents don't take them, because they don't ask their parents to go. And when they do go, and I think this will, you know, this is really important. Culturally, the sport can be a bit intimidating and not very welcoming of women and girls. And I think that's a really powerful deterrent. And I think if you if you go into any sport as a woman, into a male sport, to not feel welcome by the sport when you're that young is not a good thing, is it? To to feel excluded, to feel that, you know, there aren't even any girls toilets at this you know cart track or changing mm-hmm. facilities or you know that you're that you're you f- you feel not welcome and i don't think that's a good look for any sport is to exclude anyone and make anyone feel unwelcome in their sport 
So there's quite a lot to do, but we are working on it. That's so reassuring to hear, Kate. And I think, like you mentioned as well, it, it's so key that at even the foundational levels, like you mentioned, parents being able to educate their kids and to culturally have that, like, you know, conversation with them that, you know, anything a man could do, a woman could do, if not better, yeah. you know, and, and growing up as a kid as well, my biggest idol was always my mom because she was the one that always made the sacrifices. She was the one that always left herself undone. She's the one that, like, you know, sacrificed her quality of life to give me a better life and you know the rest of our family a better life as well so you know it shouldn't be kind of like a glass ceiling or, or any kind of like um prejudice against women in today's world you know when it comes to like the challenges and hurdles that come into it and you know i'm really relieved but also excited just to kind of see that you know the work that you guys are doing as part of more than equal is putting them the foundations in place to make sure that you know women the next kind of like female world champion the next kind of like you know like elite kind of female female driver in, in sports will have the backing and have the facilities and the training and all the equal opportunities kind of as a kin to the name to to be able to do that because i think in life everybody deserves a chance you know and that's right it's... that's exactly right that's exactly mm -hmm. right and you know if you know to to see young girls who if you've ever seen, and this is something that you and anyone who's listening can do to help, because I often get asked, you know, what can you do to help? And I go, you know, if you can train elite athletes, uh, come and help us. But apart from that, what you can do is go on social media, find some young female racing talent and support them, follow them and, you know, get everyone you know to follow them. Give them a bit of social media love and support because they find it tough out there and it can be quite lonely for them, but there are some brilliant, young, talented female racers out there and they just need everyone to get behind them. You know, it's an expensive sport, isn't it, Dan? It's not like picking up a football and kicking it around. Well, it's not, it's not that, it's not easy to get into. You've got to find a cart track, you've got to pay to go karting. But those girls that I've seen who are out on track doing it, they fall in love with it. They are really good at it. And yet, all along the way, one barrier after another is, is put in their place. And I've talked in Formula One, I've talked to Formula One teams, and I've talked to senior people in Formula One, and they say, quite rightly, they say, well, you know, Formula One team, we don't care. If you deliver us a female who can beat everyone else on track, if you find us a girl who can beat Max Verstappen, we'll take them every day of the week. And they kind of go, so you see, we're not, um, you know, we have no prejudices. You kind of go, yeah, okay, that's great, but it sort of misses the point. The point is, they're not getting anywhere near there for you to make that solution. No good you saying, hey, it's okay, if you get there, we'll, we'll welcome you. What about making it a little bit more equal in getting there in the first place? You know, we're, we're not there to make it easy for girls. We're just made there to make it equally difficult for girls. And at the moment, they have all these additional barriers that are just unfair. It's so true, Kate. And like you mentioned as well, like it, it's you know so easy for us in a way. I think people forget the kind of advantages and almost the the powers they have just in in you know a mobile phone to go and show support, go and follow, go and interact, and to help kind of like you know these younger women who are 
you know, pursuing a career in motorsports and, and being a driver and, and becoming the next great athlete. And, you know, it doesn't cost anything to us. So I think more of us should be doing that as well. But at the same time, you know, there's a balance in that too, in terms of like guys not being creepy and, you know, just being respectful towards women as well and, and showing them the same respect that, you know, you would give to a male competitor as well. So I think it's super key. And I think a lot of people's eyes are being open to the change. And I'm glad that, you know, the fight hasn't started yet. It, you know, it's only just begun. But in a sense, we're already seeing the likes of like uh, Jamie Chadwick in the Indie NXT series, like having the opportunity to, you know, take on the guys. And she's doing extremely well with that. In the sports car racing scene as well, we've got like the Iron Dames, which again, you've got the likes of Michelle Gatting and um, a lot of other drivers as well, trying to, you know, bridge the gap and, and showing that, you know, if women are given the same platforms and same opportunities and, and investment and quality and time and love, that, you know, they can produce the results and be just as outstanding as, you know, all the, all the guys that people get behind as well, Kate. So... I 100% agree with you and I implore all of our listeners as well to kind of get behind the campaign, you know, to check out more than equal. And of course, as well, you know, like if you know any people with expertise, of course, send them in the way of, um, you know, more than equal. But even from just your own individual kind of perspective as well, make sure you follow them. And like Kate has mentioned as well, go and check out all the female talent out there because there's really no shortage that I can definitely assure people, Kate. So... I'm very thankful that we addressed this and we'll, we'll circle back to it as well because it'd be interesting to contrast kind of the foundation we st- we've um, based it in some of the other topics we'll discuss, Kate. But, you know, kind of going back to you because, you know, you are a star of the show. Like, Kate, talk to us more about just like your earlier days. So you qualified as a lawyer and then shortly began working for Tom Walkinshaw, which if people don't know, you know, huge kind of influence in the world of motorsport racing and i think you ran f2 and f3 teams before investing into arrows okay how did you make that kind of jump from like the legal world uh working for arrows um what was the kind of um connection there and and also how would you describe your time there i know that towards the end as as it is with most teams that you know financially don't kind of like survive the um the hot climate that is formula one it can get tricky but what were the earlier experiences that you experienced there working for arrows and talk about the time there as well for us well uh, how it happened was this so i was a lawyer in private practice newly qualified and one of my first clients was tom walkinshaw but not on the racing side of the business tom walkinshaw used to own a whole load of luxury car dealerships in the south of england I had about 30 dealerships, all different makes and marks of car, uh, going all the way up the M40. And he used to buy and sell these dealerships, right? So you would you would sell one dealership, BMW in High Wycombe, and you'd buy another two dealerships elsewhere. So there was a lot of churn going on in building up his empire. And my job in private practice as a lawyer, my specialised in buying and selling car dealerships because I did one job for him. Uh, one car dealer, then I did two, then I did three, then I did four, and suddenly I was the expert. So I ended up doing so much work for him that I think he got a bit peed off with it, and he said, um, I don't know why I'm paying the law firm all this money, so he said, come and work for me. He had one lawyer working for him at the time, um, and Alistair Mitchell, a great man, um, and 
he gave me my first break, Alistair, and he, he approached me and said, come, come and work for us. Tom wants you to come and work for us so he doesn't have to pay the law firm fees anymore. And it didn't take me long to decide to do that because it just looked like more fun working in a company than in a law firm, if I'm being honest about it. So I did. That's exactly how it happened, and I, and I went and joined them. And it was only after that, after I joined, uh, that, um, that he decided or got the deal to buy Arrows. Because, of course, if you remember, he was uh, technical director of Benetton at the time, before he had Arrows, wasn't he? Uh, he was technical director of Benetton when Schumacher was there, with Flavio. Um, and, um, and he quite fancied not being a technical director anymore, but having his own team. So he went and bought uh, the Arrows Formula One team from Jackie Oliver. And that was one of the first jobs I worked on when I was, when I was at um, Arrows, at TWR, which then bought Arrows. And I had an absolute great time there. It was, it was brilliant. Tom was great to work for. He was very like, much like Bernie. He had racing in his bones. I mean, there are some team owners uh, who just live and breathe racing. It is, it is who and what they are. They are not in there to make a fortune. They're not in there as managers. Uh, they are there because they love racing. And that was Tom. He had racing through and through him. Uh, and he had very high standards. And he had a, a bit of a bad temper. So very, very like Bernie. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was it was really good working for him, and we we had some great years there. You've already alluded to it. That wonderful orange arrows livery. I mean, the cars were beautiful then, and I may be a bit biased, but I I thought they were beautiful back then. So I loved the arrows cars, um, and um, yeah. So I had a great time, and I learned a lot about Formula One that I didn't know because I wasn't a Formula One fan. I didn't know anything about Formula One at all. In fact, even now I'm not that much of a fan, so don't ask me any difficult questions. Um, <laughs> I, lo I love the business of Formula One. I really love the business of Formula One because you're just surrounded by people who are at the top of their game, which is really good, isn't it? Because you hope that it'll make you a bit better. Um, so I love being in the environment. It's fast paced. It's full of really, really smart people. Uh, and, it, and it's exciting to be in. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not that fussed about sport, frankly. I love, I love business more than I love sport, and I love live events. I don't think you can beat a live event, whether it's a Formula One event, or whether it's a World Cup final, or whether it's Glastonbury. There is something magical about a live event, isn't there? About when people come together, you know, and there's something joyous and wonderful about a whole group of people coming together for something. I would absolutely agree there, Kay. And it's true, you know, when we talk about, like you mentioned Glastonbury, which this year was phenomenal because there's so many different acts on top of that as well. Elton John kind of doing his last show and just to see how much that meant to people in that moment, how people were cherishing it and, and kind of like living in that moment, it really goes to show that, you know, these experiences are like almost one in a lifetime. And, you know, in terms of Formula One, like you mentioned, it's such a clinical and technical sport. And often the engineers, if they weren't engineering a race car or helping with, like the team win, they'd be, I don't know, working out probably the next like 
life-saving uh, medicine or you know working out the latest kind of ventilators in, in, a, in a university hospital like there's so many things that like the world of formula one has done to kind of like help the acceleration and development of so many different key areas around the world as well even in terms of finance entertainment and just the commercial aspect of it as well which is a great segue Kate because then you know we've got the one and only Mr Bernie himself in 2003 Mr Akhusen asked you to come along with him and to kind of take that next step forward in terms of the running of formula one and the commercial aspect of it as well and i know you kind of talked about it in the intro okay but come on tell us give, give us a bit more of a description of what bernie's like because even this as a kid growing up and watching him on the tv he seemed like such a character you know when he was like you know running behind the team principals and pulling pranks on them or like, you know, his funny ideas about putting a water sprinkler on the track, you know, just to catch the drivers out. And all the other kind of like funny Bernieisms that Bernie was known for doing. Kind of what was he like to work with as a character? And did he have a particular vision or a type of business marketing opportunity that he kind of brought forward to you at the time when he approached you? I'll tell you what Dan that most people don't appreciate. People who know him do, but most people don't appreciate. He had the most wicked sense of humour. He, <laughs> he really did have a, he had a real dry sense of humour, a really dry, he was deadpan, you know? So sometimes you'd have to, you'd have to look twice and say, was that, you know, did he just say something <laughs> very funny? Because he would be completely deadpan. And yeah, you're right, he loved cranks as well. He was, he was really, really good to work for uh, in his own special way. So, Thing is about Bernie, and he was—he's very misunderstood, I think. And of course, he's—he's he's completely cocked up on some things, and he knows it. And you know, but but mainly people—people people don't understand is they misunderstand him. Bernie just had very very high standards. Bernie, I never saw him or experienced him do anything other than do it well. He wanted, and he and expected that from everyone. So he had very, very high standards and he kind of got shitty with people if they didn't live up to them. Right. And I think that's where he got his reputation for being a bit fierce. And he mm. was fierce, you know, uh, but he was also, but he had very high standards and he was smart. He was just so, so smart. He was, it's like, it would be like me playing chess with a grandmaster. You know, there are some people who can just see three, four, five steps ahead. Right, so they know where this is going, whatever it is, you know, if it's the industry or a particular deal or whatever. But having that chess-like brain that allows you to to anticipate every move as it goes as 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 you go on is really special. And he was just smart. He had smart, you know, and he he was, you know, he had street smarts as well. He knew people. He could read people. Right. So he knew, you know, if you were trying to get one over on him or, you know, and he was fierce, but he was fierce in the right way. I think he was he was fierce in pursuit of, of the way he saw Formula One. Formula One for him was not about, an, uh, you know, hay bales around the track and having fun and amateur gentleman races. He turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. He turned it into a, a luxury lifestyle business. He made it. You know, he made it what it is today. He made it aspirational. 
Uh, and I think he had that vision way before any other sport did. He professionalized Formula One. I mean, there was hospitality in Formula One before there was ho luxury hospitality in any other sport. You know, he pioneered in so many ways. Remember, he brought in digital TV in the late 90s. Do you remember Bernie TV? Uh, he brought in digital TV in the 90s. And people now go, what do you mean digital TV? All TV's digital. Well, you know, no, it wasn't. <laughs> there used to be three channels, four channels on, on, on TV. But he brought in digital interactive TV in the late 90s, right? That's, that's you know, ten, what, 15 years before, before you get, you know, Netflix and all of that. So he was a pioneer, uh, and he did have vision, but um, but he was—I think he was a bit misunderstood by people. I, I agree with you, Kate, and it's it's interesting, you know, because I think, like you said, for someone like you who worked with him, you really got to kind of understand the kind of DNA and the calisthenics of that man, and you know how he, his brain operated, how he was able to see opportunity. You know, you talked about Formula One being such a fierce business, and I really want our listeners to to take that in as well because it, it, you know it's about negotiating, it's about doing what's right, not necessarily to make the most money, but what's right for the sport. You know, as a going concern, you know, and to get the right deal, the right options, the right decisions at all costs. So I, I completely agree with you. You know, and if you're talking about Formula One being a multi-billion pound conglomerate which you know touches the world in so many ways more than one you know to kind of pioneer some of the um the, the earliest kind of innovations and and some of the stuff that you know today we take granted for it is really you know interesting to to hear and to learn about more so you know it's it's interesting that you mentioned that Kate and also your kind of remit was quite broad as well, working under Bernie. And, you know, you worked on various high-profile deals as well and commercial opportunities uh, for, you know, our, our lay people out there as well, being a law graduate myself, you know. With Formula One, there's so much trademark and intellectual property law, licensing, you know, that comes into it as well. I also understand that, you know, there was an idea at one stage to kind of, like, get Formula One into theme parks, which... Again, now I think, you know, when you look at the Middle East, it's almost common practice to have like a, a Ferrari branded roller coaster or, you know, of such in, in all of the facilities that are around. So, Kate, give us more of an insight in, into the world of, of that and kind of like, you know, what kind of partnership or business deal did you get most excited about during your, your time working under Bernie's kind of like structure? Well... I mean, there were lots and lots of deals we did. Some, like the theme parks, never actually happened, but they were really fun to negotiate. And they were tricky, but that was fun. But the ones that stand out for me, there's two that stand out for me, James. There's two, mm -hmm. and they're completely different. And they're at, they're at the opposite ends of my time with Bernie as well. The first one was when, I think it was 2004, when a guy came into our office and, uh, called Andrew Denford. And he came into the office to see Bernie and me, what well, Bernie dragged me in. And, uh, and the guy said, well, I've got this project that I'm doing at the moment. And it's where I get together, I get school kids to form a little team and build a model car uh, using Formula One kind of techniques to build a model car. So, you know, uh, aerodynamics and all of that. And then they, they power, they're powered by a CO2 canister and we race them and we'll see which which team of school kids win. And, 
I, we can't even listen to this. He said, hey, I've got a, you know, a few schools in the UK are doing this and it's really popular. He said, I want to brand it Formula One. I want to call it F1. And you own the trademark, Bernie. So, you know, I need, I need a license from you to do it. And Bernie's like, ah, okay. Um, so, you know, um, that's good. It's good to get kids interested in Formula One. You know, how much is there? Are you going to pay me? You know, Andrew said, no, of course I can't pay you because I don't think there's any money in it. And uh, these kids haven't got any money. Said, well, okay. Anyway, we talked about it with Bernie afterwards, and, and we did the we did the license deal with F1 in schools, and we called it F1 in schools. And it started with a few schools in the UK, where they could they could enter, and they put together a team of kids. You design the car, and you do all the marketing as well. You design the car. You have to get a kid who's who can design the car using computer aided design, computer aided manufacturing software, which we would donate to the school. You needed a kid to go, and uh, you needed a team member to go and raise sponsorship. You needed somebody who was good at design and art to design the car, the delivery uh, of the car, so that you could sell sponsorship. You needed somebody to do a bit of merchandising. You needed somebody to do all of your PR for you. And you needed to raise sponsorship money for this car because you'd have to travel to the finals. So you needed to raise sponsorship to pay for your petrol money. And if you got into the world finals, you needed to pay to go. So... This started off with just a few schools in, in the UK, uh, and that was in 2004. Um, fast forward now, it's the biggest school-age STEM challenge in the world. I think wow. it's something like nearly 30,000 schools taking part across the world. And this is all about getting kids excited and interested in STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. But the really good, so that's great, and I love that program because there was nothing better than to see young kids get excited. You know, when you're a kid, you're not that excited, I think, most of the time by maths and maybe science and technology. But you wrap it up with Formula One, it suddenly makes it interesting, right? And that's the power of Formula One. It's the power of a lot of sport, but it allowed it allowed boring subjects to become interesting to kids. And the best thing about it it disproportionately attracted girls. And we didn't design it that way, but what we found over the years was, was a higher proportion of girls were entering than represented in the school population. So we were attracting more girls into Formula One, but also into science technology uh, careers. And it was brilliant to see. And I think, you know, I think it's the, the only time I'll admit to having almost a tear in my eye. In fact, I did have a tear uh -huh. in my eye. We had the world finals in Singapore, uh, not in Singapore, we had them in Malaysia. I think it was the last uh, year of the Malaysian race, Kuala Lumpur. And Formula One in schools, F1 in schools had taken over a hotel and they had the finals running there. It, it all takes place over a few days because you have to judge the kids on lots of different things. How fast is their car? And then how good is their design? And how good is their sponsorship? How good is their marketing? So they get judged on all these different things, which allows it to be like a real teamwork. It's not just the technical kids who are good. You know, they all have to be good. So they do these finals. And then you have an award ceremony. And I was at the award ceremony, and uh, I was, you know, honoured to be allowed to present one of the awards. So I presented the award, one of the awards, and I can't remember what it was. I think it was marketing. And it was a team of girls. And it was a team of girls from a village uh, a village in Lebanon, I think, and they had never been outside the village before. 
with wow. these girls. Never been outside their village. And there they were in a swanky hotel in Kuala Lumpur picking up an award. And, you know, it, it made me cry. I spoke to them afterwards and they said, you know what, you know, this has been amazing. We now want to go to university. We're applying to go to university. And they said, without this, we kind of thought we were just going to get married and that would be it, stay in our village. And isn't that amazing? You know, it's just such an amazing story of how you can really make a difference and change people's lives. And that's that's Formula One doing good, right? That's Formula One really doing some good. Uh, and I love that project. And it's still going now. So if anyone's got kids at school, get the school to go and find out about F1 in schools and they can put a team together and join. It's a really good project. The other deal, Dems, which mm-hmm. is, is in my mind, completely opposite spectrum to that. And the opposite side, end of my time at Formula One was when Liberty first came in, in 2017, I think the first deal they signed was a deal that I put in front of them, uh, that I'd been working on actually with Bernie before that, that I'd been working on. And that was F1 Experiences. And F1 Experiences was an idea that was hatched way back in, I think, 2012, 2014, when we were first going to the States, right? When we went to Austin. Was that 2012 mm-hmm. or 14? I can't remember. It, it was about that then. region. I think yeah. you're, you're spot on with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's about then. And um, I needed to find somebody to help sell hospitality in the States because we haven't been there for a long time. Uh, so I found, um, uh, I got a recommendation to um, an agency called Quint Events in the States and uh, met up with them and said, yep, can you help me sell hospitality? Said, yep, of course we can. We've got a lot of client base in the States. And it was a relationship that worked really, really well. And the guy who founded Quint Events, a guy called Brian Lurst, uh, sat down, I sat down with him at the first Austin Grand Prix. Uh, and we sat there looking at it and we were saying, do you know what? Wouldn't it be absolutely brilliant if you could build a program so that everyone, I mean, it, it, even people who are just buying uh, grandstand tickets could get to see behind the rope a bit, who could get to see a little bit behind the scenes, who could maybe go and tour and and see a garage or the pit lane or a paddock to see a little bit because the fans of Formula One who go to races, they love the sport. And it's exciting to sit in the grandstand and watch a race, but wouldn't they love to be able to have the option to be able to go a little bit behind the scenes and have a look? Uh, And we talked about it for a few years, actually, and we eventually developed it into F1 Experiences, which is all about that. It's about giving fans Uh, the opportunity to pay a bit extra, but it's not a huge amount extra, pay a bit extra and be able to get some real behind the scenes, meet and greet a driver, go down the paddock, go and see Pirelli and how the tyres work, go down the pit lane. And and that was all all geared up and ready to go. And, And Liberty came in and great, brilliant. We signed it. We signed it, I think, within a couple of months of Liberty first coming in the door. And the first time, the first time we ran it was in Barcelona in 2017. And I think we had 20, we had 20, 20 clients for F1 experiences who bought a grandstand ticket and had upgraded to a bit of a behind the scenes thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that was 2017. I think now, now, where are we? 2023? Now it's a hundred million turnover business. And wow. just, just been bought by Liberty. So, you know, 
just shows, doesn't it? So it's how fast this business is growing. Oh, absolutely, Kate. You know, when, when we look at Formula One, just the growth of it's been exponential over the last couple of years. And like you mentioned as well, you know, it, it comes down to things like, you know, even just the Netflix series, which gives people like an insight and kind of like a fly on the wall experience of what it's like to be in a garage. And then, you know, even just the actual real life tangible experience of having to, uh, the opportunity to opt into the um the f1 experience package and you know okay i actually share something with you this weekend that just went by was the first time i had ever been to a real life motorsport race before in person i'd always wanted to go unfortunately like my dad never had the time to take me so my girlfriend was like you know then you will go to a race at some point by force i'm going to take you and it was at brands hatch as part of the british gt touring car championship so we went there and thankfully my girlfriend had known one of the drivers so we had got like a paddock pass and in a similar way you mentioned kate just the ability for me as a fan to go behind the garage to like speak to the engineers to actually see the car like you know within touching distance to you know speak to the drivers and to ascertain certain questions i'd always been fascinated and curious about you know watching kind of like a celebrity or athlete on tv and then seeing them in real life is such a, a kind of like experience which no matter how much money you put on that like it's just it's almost like priceless in terms of what that memory does for you and what that connection does for you and atmosphere and just the entire kind of like you know experience so i can completely you know see how this would have been an amazing idea and how you helped to kind of like materialize it with liberty back in 2017 and then you know to go back to the earlier opportunity or or kind of deal you, you help construct as well that's major in terms of like f1 in schools and the idea of having kind of like you know kids in school you know trying to you know prepare them for like the world of the sciences technologies the engineering and maths aspects of it and giving them the responsibilities and it, it draws a lot of parallels with running a successful formula one team and having you know the mechanical masterminds that can do the engineering side having you know the, the people that are good with the marketing side and are able to kind of attract new sponsors and it, i think that is incredible it's really 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 phenomenal that the program was able to you know grow from like such a early idea in something now that's in 30,000 different schools and giving kind of like children that wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity you know to to become something which they've always dreamed of it's it's really amazing Kate and I, I think just like in the time that you worked in F1 the landscape has really grown like it, it's really remarkable to see how things have kind of moved on from from that kind of point and and continue to expand but you know what Dan's look at those two deals and they're kind of like those are two deals both of those deals are very very close to my heart mm -hmm. one of them one of them was worth millions and millions and millions to the business right and the other didn't make any money obviously it was f1 in schools right but they both contributed that's the point isn't it you know you it, it's not one or the other people think that and formula one is all about money i mean because it costs a lot to uh, to operate in formula one and there's a lot at stake 
you know, points, you know, points mean prizes, you know, sure. <laughs> points mean cold, hard cash, you know, and there's a lot of money at stake in Formula One. But it's not just about the money, is it? It's not just about the money. And I know that sounds a bit soft, but it isn't. It is about, it's about communicating the passion that, that people in the sport have outside of that sport and doing something with it. You know, doing something that is going to hopefully make some difference to to people's lives. And, you know, I think Formula One gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes for being, um, I mean, sustainability. It gets a bad rap for sustainability. You know, actually, Formula One, Formula One didn't invent the um, hybrid engine, but Formula One certainly accelerated the development of the hybrid engine. When, when it was developed, when it was when it was brought into Formula One, right? And this is where Formula One contributes contributes the sustainability. You know, the way that Formula One accelerated the development of a hybrid engine, you could you could say that it was directly responsible for taking tons and tons and tons and tons of carbon out of the atmosphere that would otherwise be in there um, with with the you know normal um, internal combustion engine. So. You know, Formula One does contribute. I just think it hasn't been framed very well. It hasn't been, funnily enough, Formula One hasn't marketed itself very well. Well, it's, you know, it's ironic that you should mention that, kid, because I agree with you, you know, in terms of F1, it's always been the seen as the pinnacle of engineering. And, you know, you're talking about the sport working on itself to become sustainable i think it's still one of the leaders when it comes to sustainability because you know even in recent times we've gone to the hybrid engine like you mentioned this year or i believe it was last year they introduced um the biofuels so now we have e10 fuel which has 10 percent uh ethanol and then of course with that oh wait 90 percent ethanol and then 10 percent of the the rest of fuel is made up of biodegradable synthetic kind of uh, composites which are then mixed into the fuel to make it more sustainable which obviously helps the environment a long way this season as well they've had a huge emphasis on the t- on the tires obviously pirelli ship around the, r- the world a whole group of tires that get used in the practice sessions qualifying sessions in the race and what they've done to the teams is kind of like reshuffle the way they use the tires so now that the, the way of the approaches, less tires are being used, which is great, you know, because it means less of a, a of like a carbon footprint in terms of transporting those uh, tires. And on top of that as well, you know, even with a tire, you know, they use the tires for the race, etc. And then when it comes to giving those tires back to Pirelli, you know, there's only so much they could probably do with what's left of the the the, the um the carcass of the tire that remains and kind of obviously breaking it down into the elements and recycling it into something new. So Formula One's always, I think, had that kind of key eye for trying to be sustainable and, you know, trying to make the difference in the world, taking the technology from what is essentially a prototype car and feeding that into, you know, the daily road cars that you and I drive as well. So I think with time, more people will build that understanding. And of course, like you said, the marketing aspect of that as well, how that's sold to people, I think is something which over time will become better and people will gain more of an understanding as well. So it's really key. Yeah. But, but one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest uh, uh, areas of carbon footprint, the two big areas of carbon footprint for Formula One are the travel and the wind tunnels. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of energy a wind tunnel 
takes to run is absolutely crazy. So the more and more you reduce the, by regulation, the amount of time that the teams are allowed to uh, uh, to test and develop in in the wind tunnels, the, the more environmentally friendly you can be. And don't forget, working on working on a completely new synthetic fuel that will come in, right? That that is that it that won't uh, put out any emissions at all. I mean that that's going to be a major development. Right, that could change the world of um, of motoring, let alone motorsport, and you know so many developments. You know, in Europe we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the ICAP. You know, the ICAP rating for for NCAP rating, sorry, for cars, yeah, like the safety ratings, right, in mm -hmm. Europe that have saved. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives have been saved by the European NCAP ratings on cars right because car manufacturers have just developed and developed and developed safety so that they can all get the five star end cap rating uh that end cap uh, that end system was was introduced from formula one it was max mosley who pushed that through when he was president of the fia he he championed that project uh, it didn't exist before cars were dangerous i mean road cars your car my car was dangerous to drive Right. If you had an accident, um, you were you were very likely to be severely hurt. Nowadays, not so because of the NCAP. And that came from Formula One crash testing technology. And that came because Max Mosley pushed it through and championed it and invented it, in fact. So there's a lot of good stories out there, Dan. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be the person sitting here going, how shit Formula One is because there are no women in it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because there's there's lots of you know there's lots of ways that Formula One needs to evolve and adapt and develop, isn't there? For for the new audiences and for the new world. But let's not forget what the good it's good it's done as well, right? Absolutely, there, Kate. And I think you know this is the productive part of the balance of the conversation because. You know, like we're not saying that F one's terrible and it's a means to ends, and that you know it, it's it's the the black kind of Sabbath of the world as such. You know, but having said that, what we are saying, you know, is that there is room for improvement, and you know there can be things that can be done, and that's technically what Formula One's always been about from its inception. It's about kind of like finding the honesty in the time, in 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 trying to beat the stopwatch, in trying to find solutions to problems and evolving concepts and philosophies and ideas beyond even that so you know it's really interesting to stay here all of the kind of like um advancement stuff taking place over the year and even the stuff like you mentioned like with the ncap rating it's something which a lot of us take for granted but had it not been for formula one and the strenuous crash testing that cars would have been through in the late 80s and 90s to make them more safe after the you know the the loss of Ayrton Senna and all of these stars that we look up to like it very different in the world of just the automotive industry too so there's a lot that we could thank F1 for and a lot of credit needs to be given to that as well so I 100% agree with you and then you know talking about another kind of era of time Kate as well you know you talked about the Liberty Media takeover from like 2017 onwards and Almost at that time as well, how would you describe it from the, from well, well, both sides in terms of, was Bernie sad almost to kind of like move on? Did he, did he appreciate maybe that, you know, the sport maybe was growing quicker than perhaps he could, he could manage or, 
on top of that as well, when Liberty Media first came on board, was was everybody kind of on board with them too? Or was there maybe a perception that, you know, this kind of like group, they were going to come in and, and maybe change the philosophy of the sport into something that, you know, wasn't what the sport was at the time? H how did people perceive that initially? Um, I think, um, I mean, I hope, um, I hope nobody's listening to this because I'll tell you, you know, how it really happened. But mm -hmm. Bernie, um, uh, Bernie was effectively booted out. He, he didn't leave voluntarily. You know, um, the shares in Formula One were owned by CBC Capital, not Bernie. He had some, but the majority was owned by CBC Capital, private equity. And they sold those shares to Liberty uh, Media. So Bernie wasn't really involved in that. It was just done. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a pretty overnight, you know, it was an overnight thing. We were in Bernie's offices one day and the next day he was gone. He, he said, I'm, you know, he said, I'm out. I'm, I'm leaving. And in came Liberty. Of course, what do you think everyone's going to think? Everyone's going to be a bit worried, a bit, you know, a bit frightened. Who are these people? Uh, they're American. You know, what are they going to think? Um but Liberty are really smart people. They have all the best of the qualities that you, will, you, you would get from an American business. And that means that they are supremely optimistic. They are very can-do. So, you know, there were, if I wanted to do one new thing with Bernie in hospitality, I would have to, I would have to go and pitch to him 10 things because I knew he was going to say no to nine of them, and I'd get one through, <laughs> right? right? And that's because he had very high standards, and he was very, very, he was very rigorous. So I would, if you go pitch something to Bernie, he would pull holes in it almost before you finished speaking. He would see <laughs> what the downside or the danger was. He sure. could see it before, before you could. He mm. would spot the weakness in the proposition a bit too quickly, right? which made it a bit risk averse. It was a bit like, unless you could, unless you can be 100% bulletproof sure of what you're doing and why you're doing it and what the benefits are and what you're gonna make out of it, then it wouldn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. Liberty had a completely different approach and that was, look, you know, this is a sleeping giant here. This is a sleep, Formula One is a sleeping giant with, with millions of fans around the world who just want more. Should we do something really, really radical and should we just give the fans some more of what they want and it was like oh my god shock horror <laughs> <laughs> you know uh but you know you felt it don't you with that that's what happened social media opened up and basically they said to all of us as as directors they said you've got your departments you know you've got your divisions go and do what you need to do to grow this business and to grow the fan base right very hands-off we'll leave you to it just go and do whatever it is you need to do. And in that sense, we were kind of unshackled. I was unshackled, and I went a bit nuts, actually. Um, I didn't need to be asked twice, put it that way. And Because um, <laughs> I had a whole stack of projects I wanted to do, because they were all the ones that Bernie had said no to. So I was up and ready, ready to go. <laughs> and, um, and that's what happened. So it was a completely different culture, completely different. And a lot of people in Formula One were worried about it at the time. They wondered whether, oh, God, are the Americans going to dumb down Formula One? Is it all going to become a bit NASCAR? 
but I think they soon got over that and realised that a lot of the new stuff, I mean, one of the first things we did with, with Liberty, I remember this very, very well. So now that I'm sat at my desk with Liberty and they've said, do whatever you need to do. I was like a kid in a suture. I got a phone call from somebody I know who works at Disney and they said, hey, we've got a new Cars movie coming out. I think it was Cars 3 or Cars 2, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they said, you know, can we kind of work with you, or work with Silverstone, work with you and, and put something on at Silverstone? Maybe we'll do a, a, a private preview of the movie, put a tent up somewhere or something like that. And we, yeah, we, I said, yes, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, yep, let's do something. And we chatted it through and I said, do you know what? You know, rather than just doing a preview, kind of like a premiere of the film, um, I said, why don't we just, why don't we just turn a garage into a Cars 3 garage? I said, have you got a life-size, like, you know, Lightning McQueen car, like a full-size one? Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, we have, we've got one somewhere. I said, why don't we just mock up a garage, but just like make it Cars garage with Lightning McQueen in the garage, in one of the Formula One garages. And they were like, God, is that even possible? Can we do that? I said, I don't know. Can we try? <laughs> <laughs> and we did do it. And we, we in 2017 at Silverstone, we did. We had this like cars garage with Lightning McQueen and, and what's his name? Owen Wilson came over, you know, and he went on the podium and all that. And I was really, really worried about it. The car, the garage was being built and it was beautiful. They did a beautiful job. It was just like walking into the cars movie, you know, the cartoon movie. And I was really worried about the doors in the garage going up for the first time on the Friday at Silverstone. Because I thought all of the people I respect in Formula One, the team owners, the team principals, the drivers, all the top swanky people in Formula One, I thought, they're gonna they're gonna really hate this. They're gonna think this is dumbing down Formula One to have one of their, you know, hallowed garages turned into a cartoon garage. You know, during a race weekend, I was really worried. I thought, I thought the reaction to it might be a bit, you know, adverse. I mean, I knew the fans would love it and TV would love it, but I didn't know whether the insiders on Formula One would think this was a step too far. And it was, I couldn't have been more wrong. Every single team principal came into that garage and wanted a picture with the life-size Lightning McQueen car, you know, and Owen Wilson, of course. Uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it was, you know. It, it it was Formula One was like yeah okay the world you know the sky's not going to fall in just because we try something new right um, so that was that was when I first knew it was all going to be all right you know we can do new stuff and we can evolve as a sport we can change and I still think we can now so it's a good thing isn't it absolutely you know and like you mentioned as well okay it must have been like a really daunting period of time when you know like the change happened and then like liberty said right away you guys go into the wild west try out all these ideas give it your best shot and then you know like the implications or almost the the feedback you're going to get off the teams internally as to whether or not some of the ideas would be good i could imagine being really kind of like scary but you know it, it shows that i think in this day and age, a lot of us have to kind of welcome change and to not be afraid of it and to at least give it a try. And even with stuff like that, it's huge. I remember actually watching the original, like, first Cars movie as a kid and Michael Schumacher being, like, uh, one of the extras at the end of the movie. And 
that like it stuck with me like from that day onwards because like one of my favorite films and i love lightning mcqueen so you know to, to have that interaction with between the sport and you know like the younger generation the younger fans and even just the teams to endorse it and to you know like make that part of it as well i think it's super key and it's amazing as well to kind of see that the perspective and all the also the attitude has kind of changed because i think people have like a perception of formula one being like a all boys club as such and like it's very exclusive and very swanky but actually over the years like it's already started to take steps to be quite inclusive and quite diverse and you know willing to kind of tackle any challenge from any angle which i think is always quite refreshing to see kate so i i love that kind of perspective and that well, story I think that, mm. yeah but i think that you know what fans i think the whole i mean you know not just not just a woman formula one world champion not just women driving in motorsport or in formula one but the whole i think i think the diversity challenge is one of the biggest that the sport faces right now mm -hmm. uh, because you you know the world has moved on it, it's moved on and we need to make sure that the formula one moves on with it and that we are aligned and in step with our new audience and you know they call them don't they the netflix audience right the, the new audience that formula one's had through the drive to survive right it's got millions and millions of new fans formula one and they're not like you then they 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 haven't been watching it since they were kids and you know on their on their mum or their dad's knee <laughs> they're they're new to it right they're sure. new to it and mm. guess what if the sport doesn't give them make them feel welcome and doesn't give them what they want they'll just go and do something else right they'll go to coachella next year instead they'll decide they like that and not go to formula one so the sport has an opportunity now to appeal to that entirely new generation and a lot of them are women young women and they want more from the sport than it's doing right now we did a i told you we did this big piece of research more than equal and we surveyed the fans and the majority of them uh, were these new netflix generation and we had the highest proportion of female respondents than any survey uh, has ever had so we got a very good we got a very good view on what this new fan base is thinking and particularly the fastest growing area of the fan base in formula one is women what do they want from formula one and and, and the sport is falling short on not just gender, but all areas on diversity. And you know, Lewis, you know, look at what Lewis has been, Lewis has been saying this for years, of course. And, and he's put a lot of money behind it, behind trying to address it and make change. But, but you know, across the sport, diversity and inclusion is something that needs to be tackled root and branch and seriously and meaningfully in order to keep in step with the audience on this with the public on this you know the world has moved on and we need to move on with it and there's a danger if we don't that that we'll turn off a lot of fans uh, the opportunity if we do is massive isn't it is to grow a sport that has a truly inclusive fan base uh, inclusive in working in the sport you know across the board and i think that that's what we should be fighting for right now 
I 110% agree with you, Kay. And I, I love the commitment and also kind of just the outline there as well of, as to what the goal is and what needs to be done, you know, for Formula One to continue to re remain kind of like relevant to, you know, the wider audience. And it has that opportunity because like you mentioned as well, it's the one sport where every race we're somewhere new, you know, we're in a completely new continent sometimes as well. These days as well, there's a huge push for like 25 races at you know at a time whereas back in kind of like my day i think it was just like 14 races so it, it's continued to evolve and continue to change and i'm glad that you know the, the landscape's changing you mentioned lewis hamilton as well and he's got so many great causes like the mission 44 campaign as well which is again kind of like um an organization based uh reaching out to kids and trying to understand kind of the reasoning why, you know, there's not so many kids in STEM subjects and kind of giving them the opportunities and the branches to, you know, make that step into the world of, um, you know, motorsport, Formula One, and just to kind of grow with the sport as well, which I think is key because, you know, the, the kids of, well, tomorrow are, are the kids of the future, you know, and I think to have the platform and the foundation there, so when they're old enough to kind of execute and to be part of it, I think is really neat and, and something quite promising for the future as well. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you're a, if you're a young girl, what makes you want to go karting if you don't see any role models any women racing you know if you're you know if you're a if you're a black kid what makes you want to go and be an engineer if you don't ever see any of them or a driver or a team principal i want to run a formula one team well if you've never seen anyone that looks anything like you doing that it's 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 that's going to stop you dreaming and imagining from an early age and and that's that's bad isn't it that that's bad on on any level you shouldn't be you shouldn't be limiting the aspirations of kids just because you know they can't they can't see see themselves doing that thing absolutely you know and that's the thing as well like the message should be that the world for them should be their oyster and ultimately you know like the more that they see kind of like people like themselves or, or kind of like examples of people like themselves in the fields that they want to be, I think it acts more as a catalyst for inspiring them and giving them motivation and aspirations to, to you know, to join them and to work towards it and perhaps even surpass them. So I think it's super key, you know, and there's so much work behind it already happening behind the scenes with great campaigns as well, such as More Than Equal. But of course, it's us as the listeners and fans and consumers as well that can have a huge hand in that as well Kate. so i 100 agree with you and kind of onto a new topic Kate, before we wrap the show up i think it would we'd be remiss if, if we didn't kind of ask you this as well what would you say are your top three favorite like formula one paddock club kind of experiences or or still stories or just you know have there been any exciting moments or kind of en encounters with celebrities that are quite funny that you could like retell our audience oh there's been so many then so many i mean really really good stuff so you know i take it from from 2017 when liberty came in one of the first things i introduced in the public club was the flat the truck tours right mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, sometimes a lot of your listeners might not know this because the TV coverage isn't that early, but before the race starts, the drivers all get on the back of a flatbed truck 
and it drives them around the circuit and with usually with Sky TV or somebody on there and they wave to all the fans in the grandstand so that every fan in every grandstand gets to have, you know, a look at the drivers as they drive live. And they're all just standing on the back of this flatbed truck. Those flatbed trucks, by the way, in Europe are the ones that bring all the kit and equipment. So they're, they're loaded up with containers. Those are taken off to build the broadcast centre, right? And then it just leaves the flatbed. And then they adapt that, they stick some railings on it, and they use that to drive the drivers around to wave to the crowds before it races. And I saw that truck just sit in a car park, sitting there doing nothing in a car park. And so I said, I kind of borrowed it. So I got the driver and I said, could you just drive me around the track so that I can stand on the back of it? see what it's like so they drove me around it was in Bahrain actually and beautiful the sun was going down it was warm and the truckie he drove me around the circuit 25 miles an hour around Bahrain and just because I just wanted to see what it was like and it was amazing like in all these years in Formula One I had never actually gone around on the track in Bahrain I didn't I didn't get how steep some of those you know elevations are mm -hmm. it was incredible i just got a whole new perspective on the circuit and don't forget i'm not even a fan and i got excited so i was like well if i'm not a fan and i can get excited this is cool so i just thought it was really cool to drive around the track and see i, I was amazed at how how um high some of the curbs are you know if you go over that in the truck you know you feel it and i was thinking god you don't really see that on television how high those curbs are. You don't see how steep some of the elevations are at some of the tracks. It looks a bit computer game-ish when you watch it on telly. But when you're there, it's it's a whole different perspective. So I thought, right, I'm gonna use that truck. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take VIP guests of the paddock club on the back of that truck. And I'll get a young racing driver to commentate all the way around and tell us what what you know what corner this is, why it's important, how fast they'll be going into this corner and out of it, you know, and all of that. So I did that and I had, I think I had 12 guests the first time round. And in fact, I couldn't persuade anyone to do it. They were all up there in the paddock club having lovely hospitality and champagne. And I said, <laughs> do you want to come and stand on the back of a truck with me and go around the circuit? And they were like, nah, you know, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Have another glass of champagne. But I persuaded sorry, 12 of them to come on with me. And um, and it was brilliant, and they loved it. And then the next time we did it, you know, there were like, instead of 12, there were 24, and then it was 48, and then it just got out of control. And now there are five trucks that go round for the paddock club guests to go round and stand on the back of this truck, and it is brilliant. One of the best ones I ever did was, I did it for a VIP guest of ours, um, who's a really good guy, he came to lots of races, called Mike Krieger. And he is the chief tech, he's one of the founders of Instagram. Wow. Right. And he is American, obviously, West Coast American, but his father's Brazilian. So he brought he was brought up right, watching Formula One as a kid, which was quite unusual in America then. But his father was, you know, really into Formula One because he was Brazilian. So he'd been brought up with Formula One. He wanted to come to a race. So he came to a race and um, he came with his dad. And it was like a, you know, father son weekend for them. And of course, you know, it's Mike Krieger. He found an Instagram like course I'm going to look after him. So we looked after him in the paddock club and you know it was all lovely hospitality and he, they were having such a nice time together and I said Mike you've got to come on the truck till you love it. Okay. Came down you know gets on the back of a truck. Sam Power, young racing driver, ex-Porsche driver commentated all the way around 
and went round. This was in Montreal, I think. Went round the circuit, and he, he got off. He got off the truck at the end of it, um, and he said, he said, this is the best weekend of my life. And I was like, geez, that's Mike Krieger. He's like a billionaire founder of Instagram. He just stood on the back of a truck and said it's the best weekend <laughs> of his life. <laughs> okay, that's good. I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, so, you know, that's really rewarding. I think that kind of thing is really rewarding. But we had some great celebrities. I mean, we, we get all the VIPs at the Paddock Club. We've had some great celebrities. We had Bill Clinton in Austin. Wow. Oh, my God. You know, if I think he's he's the person I've met who's got, who's got the most charisma of anyone. You know what I mean? Charisma. You know when you go in a room and you know there's somebody important in there, even if you can't see them. It's like an atmosphere around some people. Um, he was he was really really brilliant. He was a great guest to have, and I loved having him there. Um, and do you know what he did that was really nice? And and by the way, this was when people weren't watching as well. Um, he would say personal thank yous to every single member of the serving staff, and he talked to them. Aww. I thought that was I thought that was really nice. You know, I mean, I guess he's a politician, so he would. But I, I figured it was there was a bit of genuineness there, there was a real charm about him. But I think there was a bit of genuineness there because I saw him doing it even when people weren't watching. You know, he he scooted off to go to the loo, and I happened to see him walking down the corridor, and he just had one security guy with a secret service. Um, uh, but somebody, you know, stopped to tell him the way, and he stopped and had a chat with him. This was just, you know, one of the junior staff. And I just, I, I like that. That's really nice. You know, it's really good to see. So we had good celebrities and we had bad celebrities. Uh, but most of the celebrities we had were really good. You know, some of them, I mean, if they're really precious and, you know, they kind of don't get invited again. But the majority of them just love the sport you know they just love the sport and if they're not if they're not fans of the sport they get to love it so like mm -hmm. owen wilson came for um for silverstone for cars right and disney brought him in uh, disney brought him in the helicopter and he was there to promote the cars movie and um our head of production came to me and he said hey what do you think about getting owen wilson to do the podium because it wasn't planned they just kind of thought well, well he's there anyway maybe he could do the podium Especially if Lewis wins, because Lewis, I think, was part of the voiceover in one of the, in this cast movie, wasn't he? So it was. So they said, "Do you think he'd do it?" And I said, "Well, I'll go and ask him." So I go over, and he's having lunch, you know, and I sit down with him and having a chat, and I'm saying, "Do you want to do the podium?" He had his. I think he had one of his publicists there, and he was like, "Well, I don't know. I don't know a lot about Formula One." And I was like, "You don't need to know a lot. You just, you, you know, all you need to know is who won, because that's who you're giving the cup to, right?" So. <laughs> really easy you don't need to know that and his publicist was like no 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 this wasn't on the schedule we can't do this it's you know it's not a good idea we haven't prepped for it or anything it's like, oh, such a shame anyway so the publicist went off went off to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. so i took my chair, sat down with him and i oh go on i said this will just you know i said they will love you out there and you know this was literally we were about 10 minutes before the podium and i said <laughs> you know I said, Lewis is going to be up there. I said, you've really got to do this. I said, they will love you out there. And he, he was really relaxed. He was really laid back. He said, oh, okay then. So I grabbed him before his publicist could get back from the bathroom. 
I grabbed him and took him down the secret back corridor and shoved him onto the podium. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's how it. That's how it happened. And his publicist, I think, went a bit nuts. But there we are. <laughs> Okay. that's legendary honestly like owen wilson being snuck in to do a podium kind of presentation is is the sort of thing i really needed to hear because that's super cool and just to imagine his reaction as well and i imagine he might like he would have probably played it down pretty cool but probably on the inside he's quite nervous but then you know to yeah, i think he it was it's hard it's funny isn't it get a major celebrity and they're a bit nervous <laughs> get out of here true they should be used to it no but like again like i can imagine with so many people at silverstone and then you know the drivers as well and i mean lewis i guess is the easier one to go for but some of them can yeah. be a bit more mean or a bit more kind of like um sharp in their responses yeah, exactly. but you know I, I think that was like a great opportunity for him and i'm glad that you know he, he actually stood up for the opportunity and took it as well because you know it's given us that really awesome story Kate so thank you for that and also Kate just again thank you for your time we're, we're almost at the end of the episode but Kate you've been an amazing guest really given us a lot of insight as well into the world of F1 and what I really enjoyed about this episode was that you know you've kind of been in F1 from the the, the times where like it was very kind of commercial and very, how would I say, kind of male testosterone, kind of like guys kind of being very egotistical and whatnot. But now we're in a kind of time and place where the focus is different, the attention is different, the, the needs and demands are all different. And we're kind of working towards like a sport that's more sustainable and of course as well more diverse and more inclusive as well so kate for all our listeners out there as well where, where can they, they find you and also is there a website as well for the campaign in relation to more than equal yes there is you can go to more than equal.com um you can even download the 60 page research report we we uh, we did if you've got any problems with insomnia i recommend it um <laughs> But it is really good. Seriously, it's a really, really good piece of research. You can also register there uh, as a supporter of ours, and we'll send you newsletters when we, you know, when we get our act together to produce them, which will be very soon. So please do. And as I said before, you know, if if you don't register with us, your support, which is fine, go and find some young drivers, some young female talent, and give them some love because they need it. They really, really do. And not only that, but they appreciate it too. They will really appreciate your um, uh, your listeners getting behind them a bit. So yeah, look at that. Um, I'm on Instagram myself. Uh, I'm a big fan of Instagram. Um, and so I'm at Instagram under Kate underscore Bevan. And um, my cats have got their own Instagram account in case anyone wants to follow them as well. <laughs> You know, their content is better than mine, I think, but there we are. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so please do um, follow us. We, we absolutely love to have the support of everyone for this. Oh, thank you so much for that, Kate. And like um, we've mentioned as well, we implore you to go and check out Kate's social media as well. And on top of that as well, the More Than Equal website to have a look at the report as well, because, of course, I bet you there's some alarming statistics and, and a lot of interesting empirical data and research that's been um you know put together in that report too so something i'll definitely be reading on my train journeys and commutes to work 
But Kate, as always, thank you so much for your time, Mum. I was actually already saying to Georgina that we'd have to get you back for a second episode, maybe like a live episode with the web cameras and, you know, like more of an interactive thing with our fans as well so they could check in some live questions. But you've been That'd a be superb great. guest. That'd be, that'd be mm -hmm. fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go live. Ah, oh, that'd be brilliant. We'll, we'll definitely arrange it soon enough. And uh, Kate, again, just thank you so much for your time. It means the world to me. You're our star of the day, so we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit the like button and you subscribe and you share with all of your friends and connections as well. It really helps the podcast grow. If you're new, I hope that you know you took away as much from this episode as I did, as always, because we have some really amazing guests and we're so thankful to our founder, Georgina, as well for organizing this and for giving us the opportunity. So guys, please, you know, the least you could do is at least like and share. And uh, please check out as well, morethanequal.com as well to get behind them and the great work that they're doing. And until next time, it's been your boy AMG Dents, a.k.a. Smooth Operator. I'm going to start singing. <laughs> until next time, on next episode, we'll catch you soon. Please take it easy and we'll catch you again. Bye for now.